Let's take our Bibles and turn to the last book, the book of Revelation. We've spent a lot of time in this book recently uh, as we did the study of the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. But now we're going to move a little bit farther into the book up to chapter 12. And chapter 12 places us right in the middle of the final battle between God and the devil, which, by the way, the Lord wins completely and conclusively. And then in verse 12, yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in chapter 12, there's a key moment uh, when the enemy, who here is portrayed as a red dragon, is thrown down to the earth, and that's a prelude to what's going to happen, his ultimate final defeat, and in chapter 12, the Lord declares his victory. Now, this is our passage for today, and we're just going to read two verses, um, and we're going to look at one description of the enemy uh, that, that we're not giving him any credit for this morning because it's a problem for us, but it's the foundation for our study this morning. So, chapter 12 of Revelation, start in verse 10, and we're going to read verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Now, the first thing I would like uh, you to notice before we study the nature of the enemy's attack is that the text in these two verses is abundantly clear about two truths. The first one's in verse 10, where we see that the Lord's victory and his power over the devil is absolute and it's complete. To the extent that the enemy is thrown down and his fate is sealed forever. That's truth number one. Truth number two is in verse 11, where we see that every believer, do we believe this as much as truth one? Every believer is empowered to overcome the enemy. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb and of the word of our testimony. Now, these truths, these two truths, which are equal in value, they are essential for us to believe and to hold on to. Because when we see how the attacks of warfare will come, and we'll describe that this morning, and when we see the words that are associated with those attacks, unless we are confident, unless we are secure in these two truths, we will constantly live with feelings of discouragement and even defeat. Verse 10, look back at it, describes our adversary as the accuser of the brethren. And it says that he stands before the Lord, day and night, accusing us. Now, that's arrogant and audacious at the least. That he stands before the Lord God, who he once served, and he accuses us and accuses us and accuses us and accuses us. He knows that Jesus has already won eternal victory. He knows that Jesus has saved us to the uttermost, because this is talking about believers. He knows that God has secured us as his adopted children forever. But that doesn't stop the opposition from still trying to secure any measure of success over us. Now, we're going to study in a moment how he does that. But before we do, please, I beg you, do not lose sight of these two truths. 
God always wins, and he gives us the ability to endure anything. I'm going to say it again because only two people said praise God. God always wins, and he gives us the ability to endure anything. That's better. Now, it's with confidence and assurance that we just sang about that we can talk about the words that are used to accuse us this morning. Because what we are going to learn today is that we need to turn those words around to become reminders of God's grace and sources of God's power and the impetus to hate sin and to love the Lord and to serve Him that much more. And by the time this study's done, we're going to have, I pray, Holy Spirit, help us now. We're going to have greater insight into the accusations of spiritual warfare, and we're going to learn how to turn them into a position of gratitude and fire for the Lord. So I really want to encourage you today, take some notes. You've got the back of the bulletin you can use. Write some things down. I'm going to give you a lot of verses that you can reference later. But, but we need to understand this morning what we're fighting against and how to overcome it. And we can overcome it because God promises we can overcome it. So we're not arguing for position of weakness this morning. We're arguing for position of strength. Heaven tells us that our accuser, our opposition, uses accusation as a constant method of attack, which means that words are, are maybe a more effective tool of aggression against us than the temptation of sin. Because the devil doesn't stand before the Lord and say, I'm going to tempt roads with that, tempt roads with that, tempt roads with that, tempt roads with that. All the devil does is stand before the Lord and accuse me. So how powerful at this point are the words of spiritual warfare? And we can see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The initial temptation was not eat the fruit, right? The initial temptation was that God has distorted the truth, that he's not being honest, that you should have doubt, and that there should be animosity in you toward the Lord. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the enemy... The devil uses words and he twists scripture. Imagine that. He's speaking to the word of God and he's misquoting scripture to try to defeat Jesus. He uses words and twists words to try to defeat us emotionally and mentally and physically and even spiritually. If he had the, the audacity to misquote scripture to Jesus, then there's no reason to think he's going to be intimidated by us or that he's going to change his tactic. And since our minds can be... Uh, easily manipulated if we're not continuously say to the Holy Spirit, renew my mind, renew my mind, renew my mind, speak truth to me. I'm going to study your word. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to you. Speak truth. Get my mind in the right place. If we're not constantly doing that, then the truth will be twisted and we'll be accused and there will be an effective uh, temptation against us. But if we learn to recognize the temptation learn to recognize the accusations, and then hold them up against this book. Hold them up against the truth. Hold them up against God's promises to us, like we just read in verse 11. Then those words of accusation now become very ineffective. They don't have any, any root in our, in our spirit and in our mind, and they're unable to influence our thinking. Remember, so much of the battle is in our mind. 
So we have to guard our minds by filling them with what is pure and what is holy. And that is centered on the Word of God. Your mind and my mind has to be full of the Word of God. Because if it is, that will, that will decommission the enemy. It will hinder him from convincing us that following the flesh is better than following the Word of God. And it will hinder him from convincing us that the Lord's lying to us and that we can't get through it and we can't be sanctified and we can't be blessed and we can't be content. And we certainly cannot overcome. But, but we can always point back to Revelation 12, 11. So let's identify this morning. Let's try to clarify this. And again, I want you to write some things down. Let's identify some of the statements that are made against us. Number one. You're not good enough spiritually. You're not good enough spiritually. Now, this one is used very carefully to try to convince us that our works are really the determining factor in whether we're saved or not. So the enemy promotes a, a, a chronic insecurity that we need to do more. So we'll be obsessed with trying to earn our salvation instead of responding to Christ. And often that works. But this accusation can actually become kind of, kind of counterproductive to the enemy. Because if we hear this and we realize that it's true, instead it gives us clarity, I need more of the Lord. You're right, I'm not good enough spiritually. That means I need Jesus. See, knowing and admitting that we'll never be good enough spiritually, in Romans 3.23, assures us of that. It says, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God because of our, our overwhelming sin. Okay, so if we've got Romans 3.23 reminding us of that, then we should hear, you're not good enough spiritually, and we should say, that's absolutely right. I need God's grace. I need God to cleanse me. I need God to sanctify me. I need God to transform me. In Zechariah 13.1, God tells Israel at the height of the rebellion when, when they're scattered about and the prophets are basically speaking to nobody and, and God's just giving his word to the people and they don't care. In Zechariah 13.1, God tells Israel, I have a fountain that will one day be open to you for your sin and your impurity. That's how gracious God is. Romans 5.8 tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, while our condition was hopeless, while we had no chance whatsoever, he was still willing to sacrifice for us and offer us salvation. And then he tells us in Romans 6, you used to be in slavery to sin. Remember what we just sang, chains be broken? You used to be in slavery to sin, but I bought you with the price of Jesus' blood, and I've made you servants of righteousness now. I've filled you with my own spirit. So when the enemy makes this accusation against us, we need to turn the words around. And we need to accept this as an opportunity. Lord, I'm not worthy. And I'm going to humble myself before you again. And I'm going to confess my sin again. And I'm going to ask you to search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, cleanse me out. And I need fresh mercy. And God, so this doesn't keep happening. I'm going to do what you commanded me to do. I'm going to die to self daily. And I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow you. I will tell you right now, this is no secret. 
I am not good enough spiritually. That's why I need Jesus. So that's accusation one. Accusation two. You have too many sins to forgive. This goes along with number one. You have too many sins to forgive. Now this accusation plagues a lot of people in the world. They become convinced that God could never forgive their horrible past. They are too far gone. They've done too much to ever be redeemed. And of course, this one comes from the enemy. Because as I read the other day, it's always the ones with the dirty hands pointing the fingers. So he knows all about this. And he's proud and he's defiant and he hates the grace of God. So he's going to keep telling us you are too bad. God's grace is not that wide. God might forgive the good people, but you probably aren't one of them. Listen to Romans 5.20. Where sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. Now, Paul says in Romans 6, that doesn't give you a license to sin. That doesn't mean I'm going to sin more so God will pour out more grace. It means that no matter how deep my sin is, no matter how full my sin is, no matter how far gone I am, I am not beyond rescue. God is willing and able to forgive. And the fact that we have so many sins on our ledger should convince us again that we can't save ourselves, that we need forgiveness and we need the Spirit to change us and control us. So when you hear you have too many sins to forgive, turn those words around and use them to lead you to constant daily confession and repentance. And then as God cleanses you, right? Because what does he say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us and do what? Cleanse us from all. All unrighteousness. So if I go to the Lord and I confess my sins with a sincere heart, he says, you're cleaned out. Now, once I'm cleaned out, right, I should be full of joy and I should be full of gratitude because God has exonerated me and cleaned me and the Spirit now sanctifies me and gives me a new nature and then he equips me with a sound mind and a disciplined heart so I can put off sin and overcome sin like he tells me I can. Your sins are too many. Yep, they are, but they're not too many for God to forgive. They're not too many for the grace of God. And once we acknowledge that, once we confess that, once we're cleansed of that, once we get our mind right, then we need to be aggressive. Listen now, aggressive and intentional with putting off any sin. But once we do that, accusation number three comes calling. Accusation number three is having convictions and taking a stand. Oh, it's going to make you unpopular. You're going to be on the outside. So you can have convictions for God, and you can take a stand, but listen, nobody's going to like you. People are going to think you're a freak. We all have an innate desire to be loved. We all have an innate desire to be accepted. We all want to be part of a community. And here's how the enemy's going to fight that. He's going to keep talking about the majority of people that disagree with us. The majority of people that think Christ is unnecessary and even that he's a joke and that you and I are uncool, we're weird, we're on the fringe. 
You trust Jesus? Really? You believe, you believe the Bible's literal? <laughs> okay, yeah. Right? Believing in the word of God, literally, holding to this word, is by no means mainstream in our culture. Don't, don't tell me there's a Christian nation. This is not a Christian nation. I don't care how it was founded. What we're doing this morning, singing praise, lifting our hands, giving to the Lord, it's not mainstream. Loving the Lord, taking a stand for the Lord, having biblical conviction, being, being so careful in how you live, restraining yourself, putting off sin, denying yourself, that's not mainstream this morning. And now the enemy's pushing the buttons even more because he's aggressively advancing this narrative by making a strong push, and he's being successful, to redefine what's normal in our culture. And he's changing laws, and he's calling us intolerant and narrow-minded. Now, we all see the irony in that, and we all see the hypocrisy in that. But there's now intense pressure on Christians to not swim against the tide and to just give in and to certainly, come on now, certainly don't hold a literal view of the Bible. I mean, we're going to have to bend a little bit if we're going to fit in. We're going to have to give up some positions in order to still be heard. And the enemy is going to keep taunting us to change our ministry and change our mission to be relevant, lying that it'll bring more people in and that once they get here, they'll somehow get it and they'll walk with the Lord. That's a false promise. It's a false promise. And it's hurt the maturity and the witness of the American church. So Romans 12, 2. Do not, this is a command, it's not a suggestion. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may, this word stuck out to me, that you may prove what the will of God is. First Thessalonians 4 says the will of God is our sanctification. It's that we're holy. Then Paul continues and says what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the temptation and the accusation is that we have to have the world's approval, but the Bible shows us again and again that's a dead end. If you want evidence of it, study this week Luke 15. You know it, the prodigal son. He gets a bunch of wealth. He has a bunch of instant friends. He spends his money. Everybody wants to be with him. He has everybody's approval, but it lasts only as long as he's feeding them. Once the money dries up, all the friends disappear. Nobody says, hey, bud, you're out of money. Boy, you did so much for us. Hey, hey, stay at my house. I got an extra bed. We'll feed you for a while because you've let us party for months. Hey, you buying? No, I'm, I'm kind of tapped out. Boy, they really spent a lot of money. All right, well, hey, you know, we're busy. See ya. The world's approval is temporary. So when you hear those internal words about being unpopular and being on the outside because of your conviction, turn those words around and use them to examine your life priorities. Am I trying to please man or am I trying to please the one who saved me? And We need to ask that question much more seriously than we are because the lure of the enemy 
is to live for self and please the world. So when we're accused of this, realize that it's a blessing because Jesus told us in Matthew 5, it's evidence you're really living for me. And once this accusation hits, now it starts to get more personal. And now it starts to really go after our confidence. So accusation number four is, you can't solve your problems. You can't solve your problems. Even though all of us are in the same boat, we all have problems we can't solve. Every single person in this room this morning has a problem they can't solve. Whether it's a health issue or financial difficulties or a bad job situation, uh, the, the tactic of the enemy now has to become far more personal to be effective, which means he has to convince us that my problems are worse than your problems. Remember that one, because we're going to touch on it number five. So, so my problems are worse than anybody else's problems. I'm in too deep. I'm never going to get out. I don't know how I'm going to make it through, let alone ever be happy. Now, again, this is a very risky play on the part of the enemy because it can become counterproductive to his plan if, if, if it leads us to prayer. If he says to us, you can't solve your problems, and we pull into ourselves and say, you're right, I'm miserable, I don't know how to get out of it, I'm going to explode, then he's got us. But if we hear, you can't solve your problems, and we say, well, then I'm going to start praying. Oh, he's lost. He's lost. We prayed Thursday night. We came, we called on the Lord, and God answered. Because God is an answering God. I will call on the name of the Lord. My God is greater I find my strength in the Lord, find my strength in the Lord, Jesus is my Savior. Listen, if Jesus is your Savior, then God can answer prayer. Now, it is true, we can't solve very much. No matter who we elect to office, no matter how much money we make, no matter where we live, whatever, we can't solve our problems. And when it comes to knowing uh, leading for our life and, and being effective in that leading, just when you start to feel confident, right, something happens to damage it. If you've ever lost a job, and I have, if you've ever lost a job, you know that feeling. You think you're doing well, you're working hard, you're following what you're supposed to do, you're meeting the things, you're loyal, and then the bottom drops out, right? And, and that can damage uh, you and, and lead to a lot of self-doubt. Or you can turn those words around and you can see it as evidence that the enemy destroys, but the Lord gives life and builds us up. And then you come back to Ephesians 3.20, look it up later, where God says, I'm able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you even ask or think according to the power, listen, according to the power that works in you. What does that mean? That means God's already given me the power to overcome. God's already given me the power to deal with the difficult situation. God's already given me the power to, to trust him and to be led by him and, and, to, and, to, and to seek his help and to fulfill the plan that he wants to carry out for your life and my life, which surpasses anything that you and I can imagine. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ever dream of. Why? Because there's already power in me. 
He has grace that is abundant. He has blessings that will overflow our lives. That's why you and I need to pray and we need to say, Lord, help us. Be gracious to us again like you always have been and you never stop being. We need your grace and we need your pouring out and refreshing. And God says, when you pray like that, you will have faith that can move mountains. Why? Because how many know and believe that nothing's impossible with the Lord? Nothing. And that's when the next attack comes. Number five. Everyone is better than you, happier than you, and thriving more than you. How many have heard this one? Everyone's better than you. Everyone's happier than you. Everyone's thriving, and you're not. The devil even played this one to Adam and Eve, and they had nobody to compare themselves to, and they still bought it. Social media is a mixed blessing, right? It has exacerbated this lie. It has exploded this lie. And it has created personal and spiritual insecurity with comparison. Now that fits into the nature of spiritual warfare. Where the narrative in spiritual warfare is, you're lesser than, everybody about you has a better life, and you will not only never catch up, but you really should feel bad about your failure. You know, comparison will kill your spirit. It will rob you of your joy, but again, that's where the Bible is such a valuable resource. Hebrews 11, study it this week. The heroes of faith, the great men and women of faith, do you know they were all failures? Abraham, whose wife didn't believe him, whose nephew ignored his spiritual counsel. Moses, who had two million people wanting to fire him, who actually wanted to kill him. Elijah, who was hated, had no friends, had his life threatened. David, whose family was an absolute mess to the point that his son wanted to overthrow him and kill him. Isaiah, who had no congregation to preach to. He got word directly from the Lord, and nobody listened. Peter, who constantly embarrassed himself because he was impulsive and quick-tempered, and he had a mouth on him. Paul, who was continually rejected by people, including the apostles at first, and eventually died alone in jail because everybody had abandoned him. You feel better about yourself? Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, Isaiah, Elijah. Failures, everyone. Unliked, ridiculed, out of the mainstream, didn't thrive, had to sit in the desert asking God to feed them. Wondering about the leading, wondering why people rejected them, wonder why nobody listened to them, wonder why everybody abandoned them. These are the greatest men of faith in the Bible. And they were all 
failures. When you're told by the opposition that everybody else has it better, turn the words around and know that the Lord will powerfully use you if you trust him and you're faithful. Because when they were told their failures, they said, praise the name of the Lord. God gives, God takes away. And you know what? I'm not seeking man's approval. I want to do the will of the Lord. And think about it. Two, three, four thousand years later. Think about that. Four thousand years later, we're still saying, look at their faith. Look at their faith. Number six. What you're doing for the Lord doesn't matter. What you're doing for the Lord doesn't matter. This is one of the most egregious lies that we hear as part of spiritual warfare. And it will be deeply effective and it will damage us if we buy into it. These are some of the strongest words of warfare. I hear them a lot every Saturday. What you're doing doesn't matter. And the enemy will try to convince us by presenting us with quote-unquote evidence that our service for the Lord doesn't matter. And he uses numbers to do this. For pastors, the size of our congregation. And listen, not just people in small churches. Even the megachurch pastors are looking at each other going, wow, their church is still bigger than mine. For social media, how many followers do you have? You've only got 340? <laughs> okay, yeah, right, you're popular. For us in our personal lives, how much money's in our bank account, what the square footage is of our house, how much we weigh, even thin people have self-image issues because of what the scale says. How many kids do you have? How many vacations do you take? How many people work for you? What score did you make on that test? And on and on and on. The devil just keeps throwing numbers at us and saying, see, what you're doing doesn't matter. Not good enough. And when you hear this one, turn those words around and quote again and again, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Whatever you do, doesn't matter. You're serving the Lord, do it for his glory. Nobody notices, so what? You're not popular because of it? Get over it. Because you're not seeking man's approval. That's back in what number was it? Number three? I'm not doing this this morning so you'll approve of me. I pray I'm not doing it because you'll approve of me. I'm doing it because I want to tell you about the word of God. And God hopefully will enable me and you'll be encouraged and we'll be happy. But, but listen, it doesn't matter if there's one person or 10,000. But what does our mind do? Oh. Wow, look at that person. They're more successful. You're not doing enough. Must not matter. We have to keep our focus on the outward. Listen now very carefully. The goal is to bless the Lord. The goal is to honor the Lord. The goal is to walk as the Lord's disciples. The goal is to tell people about the Lord when I start to say, well, how do I feel? And am I getting approval? And are people noticing me? And am I getting enough recognition for what I'm doing? That will kill us. 
So keep the focus outward. If you can lay your head on the pillow every night and say, I stood for the Lord, I served the Lord, I trusted the Lord, I obeyed his word, I called on his name, I gave of myself to him, I served him, and more people know about him today because of me, then you can go and you can get some great rest. But if you lay your head on the pillow, what do people think of me and how did I do? And You're going to be miserable. And that leads to the last one. It isn't worth it to serve the Lord. It isn't worth it to serve the Lord. Now, this is the enemy's endgame. Listen, we're almost done. This is the enemy's endgame to convince us to quit. At the best, to stop walking with the Lord, stop trusting, stop obeying, become worldly, and not serve the Lord. At the worst, to renounce the Lord and to turn away. It's not worth it, he says, to serve the Lord. Trust me, every single pastor in the world has heard this one many, many times. And it can become very enticing for anyone when someone's hurt us, someone's betrayed us, someone's played us, our ministry hasn't been effective, we haven't been recognized and we're worn out, and we kind of say in our mind, we may not say it out loud, but our heart conveys it, and our eyes betray it. I'm done. I'm done. Turn the words around, and hear Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, because in due time, we will reap If we do not grow weary. There is a personal spiritual harvest. That the Lord will produce in us. If we will persevere in our heart. And persevere in our mind. And persevere in our faith. And then there is a greater spiritual harvest in ministry. That if the harvest of our heart is right. Then the ministry harvest will be abundant. And when the enemy tells you it's not worth it to trust God, it's not worth it to be faithful, just start singing that old hymn, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And remember the words that God promises to tell us if we live for him and we stand for him and we get to heaven, what's he going to say? You know it. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, it's not worth it to serve the Lord. Ah, it doesn't matter. You're unpopular. People hate you. You can't get through. You can't solve the problems. You're never going to make it. You're not good enough. Your sin, come on. Revelation 12. We'll get it one more time. We're going to pray. Revelation 12 assures us God has the victory and I can overcome. So when the lies come this week, and the accusation and the words threaten to defeat you, get back in the word of truth, rest in the Lord, call on his name. I've given you at least 14 or 15 verses, passages, that if you study them, they'll fill you with confidence and joy. And as we stand for the Lord this week, we stand not as weak, 
not as defeated, not as discouraged, not as beaten down, not as weary. We stand as overcomers because that's what God tells us we are. And is there any doubt that God will be completely faithful? Is there any doubt that God will bless us abundantly? Praise his name.